Hello, welcome to a Six String Hayride podcast. This is Season 2. Season 2 will continue the same fine tradition we established in our first run of episodes. There will be a lot of discussions of topics in classic country music, everything from mama to prison. I turned 21 in prison, doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried, Mama tried, Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied. That leaves only me to blame, cause Mama tried. To guitar picking. All the crazy deal with the devil honky talk stuff you pull on Friday and Saturday. And how you're hoping to slip it past your Lord on Sunday morning. I can see us sitting around the table as from the family Bible that would read. And I can hear my mother softly singing. Talk of ages, rock of ages left for me. And yeah, we're still going to have recipes. A lot of the greats in country music have contributed to or flat out written some fine cookbooks, so we will keep you well fed there. And we have a brand new feature that's going to come for you here during season two. We're going to start doing some short mini episodes covering topics ranging from the great sidemen of country music, people like Grady Martin. The great songwriters like Shel Silverstein. I got stoned and I missed it. I got stoned and I missed it. I got stoned and it rolled right by. I got stoned and I missed it. So please be on the lookout for the six string hayride mini rides that will be a part of this upcoming season. And along with that, We'll occasionally feature songs that we may love, but just don't really fit in anywhere else on the hayride. I says, Pigpen, this here's a rubber duck, and I'm about to put the hammer down. Cause we got a little corn, we're rockin' through the night. Yeah, we got a little corn, it's your beautiful sight. Come on and join our corn, for ain't nothing gonna get in our way. 
continue the tradition of including recipes in our main episodes. And we're going to even add a twist this year as we add some cocktail recipes brought to us straight from the Duke, John Wayne. Fill your hand, you son of a bitch! So climb on board the cart, let's go for a ride. And now I'm going to tell the casters through the fiber, let's stand up to tea. It's golden milk for sin in time, baby. So in today's episode, to kick off season two, Chris and myself are going to be talking about kind of one of the ground zeros, one of the birthplaces, one of the absolute pilgrimage-type places, not only for country music, but for rockabilly, for rock and roll, certainly, and even for a little blues and gospel, because it's there. We are talking about that incredible place at 706 Union Avenue in Memphis, Tennessee, the Sun Studios. This is considered by most music lovers to really be one of the birthplaces. Uh, It's a recording studio. It's a record label that's distributing the recordings. It's also kind of the clubhouse for what becomes a huge musical revolution kind of between 1954 and and 1958 that definitely establishes Memphis's credentials as one of the legendary locations in country and rockabilly and certainly one of the birthplaces in rock and roll. There are a few recording studio record label places like this around the country and if you are a hardcore music lover i would suggest that you get up to detroit michigan and visit the motown site well please come into chicago and go visit the chess records building on south michigan avenue and then get yourself down to memphis and go to the stack studio home of all the great soul music of that memphis era And then, yeah, get your butt over to 706 Union and learn all about Sun Studios and the man who really just lifted this whole thing up off the ground and brought us all this incredible music, Sam Phillips. Phillips found an empty storefront in a jumble of auto shops. It was located at 706 Union Avenue. In January of 1950, the Memphis Recording Service opened for business. For the next year and a half, Sam split 20-hour days between the radio station and his new studio. His calling card read, we record anything, anywhere, anytime. Born in January of 1923, he was with us all the way through July of 2003. He actually died the day before the Sun Records building was designated a national landmark. Um, And what he did was definitely, you know, worthy of national landmark. He grew up in Alabama, uh, typical of this era, poor family, owned a farm, heavily mortgaged. He picked cotton as a kid. He was surrounded by that 
kind of impoverished, colorblind point of view or, or mixture of the gospel music and the blues music. And both were equal forces in his life. Uh, a big thing that drew Phillips to a love of music as a kid was the fact that his favorite aunt was deaf mute. And as he grew up hearing church music, hearing blues music, eventually listening to Grand Old Opry and other country music on the radio, it just broke his heart. He says in interviews that his aunt could not experience music. And he said kind of from that point on, he was driven to figure out a way to spread music everywhere all around the planet and through uh, work in Alabama and then in Tennessee, he had radio jobs. He did some broadcasting, but being the clever guy that he was and very resourceful, he was also at the same time learning the mechanics of it, production, engineering, how to fix the equipment, how to get the equipment set up and working at its peak efficiency he just he wasn't interested in just being the voice in the microphone he was nuts about knowing how everything actually worked i just got to open me a little studio i know i can build it with my own damn hands i don't have any money but i can build it my own hands and i can i can get by on less than anybody with my equipment because i can make it do more i've got to have it phillips found an empty storefront in a jumble of auto shops it was located at 706 Union Avenue. In January of 1950, he opens up the Memphis Recording Service. He acquires the property at 706 Union Avenue. And initially, he's just kind of putting equipment together, learning how to do this, learning on the job, literally. And he's recording some early blues music for Colin Wolf, B.B. King, Junior Parker. Now, he's not distributing those records. He's just serving as the studio and the production. And Chess up here in Chicago and other labels around the country are distributing those records. The big one at the time that was recorded in some studio was a record called Rocket 88. You women have heard of jalopies. You've heard the noise they make. But let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's straight, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along. Written by a 19-year-old Ike Turner, who was leading a band called the Delta Cats, and their lead singer, a guy named Jackie Brenston. Rocket 88 was recorded at Sun in Memphis and released in 1951 by Chess Records, uh, again, up here in Chicago. As the recording business kind of got established and Sam learned a little more about what he was doing, and it, when you hear interviews with the guy, he was just, he, it seems very much in line with the do-it-yourself punk rock mentality in the 70s and 80s where you had a bunch of bands just recording their own cassettes on little home portable equipment. Phillips didn't have a lot to work with. He had old radio equipment. The tape players were all a little bit older. They weren't the newer models. And the man was just driven to figure out a way to get the most out of that stuff. I had the perception of kind of like being in a religious meeting that you really are 
digging what that preacher is laying down, you know. I had that feeling when I was on Beale Street. This sounds like to me that this is something that the nation and the world possibly should hear. And over a 16-year run, they put out 226 different singles and all different types of music. Rockabilly, straight rock and roll, gospel, country, blues. Uh, Sam Phillips' motto was, we will record anything, anywhere, anytime. And I can tell you from my own personal experience uh, as somebody who's really into music, those are fine words to live by. Just make sure you bring enough batteries and something to cover up in the rain. Chris, I know you have also been to Memphis. I know you have also spent a lot of time enjoying this music, these records. Uh, your thing with records being short, sweet, and fantastic. This is really, you know, the golden valley uh, of incredible singles. Documented, I think, from season one of The Hayride, that my preference when we're talking about albums is shorter is is typically better though not always uh clearly in most of these compilations that come out from the early years of sun until the later periods when uh sam phillips doesn't even own it anymore uh clearly a lot of those compilations are just short and sweet because they're made up of all these singles that were released by the label um i do particularly enjoy the fact that some of the music that I truly grew up listening to in terms of the blues, uh, Howlin' Wolf in particular, you know, these guys first recorded here. And I wasn't aware of that necessarily as a kid because these aren't records that came out under the Sun label. Now, as an adult for a while, I thought there must just be some Sun records that are harder to find or harder to, to learn about. Uh, I didn't learn until recently that he was that it was just the Memphis recording service making these recordings and then shipping them to other labels, selling them to other labels, the artists taking them to other labels, whichever of those things happen to apply to the particular situation. But one thing I want to touch on, because I think it's really fascinating, you, you did make the point about the slogan that the Memphis Recording Service operated under, which is, we record anything, anywhere, anytime. Well, part of that was that Phillips had this philosophy that he didn't care who he was recording. He just wanted to be recording somebody. And so he allowed amateurs to show up at his studio and to make some recordings. Now, Probably when people hear amateurs showing up in a studio to make recordings, they think of things like some of those uh, booths that were popular in department stores in the 50s where you could go record your own little novelty thing or record yourself singing happy birthday and have it pressed on an acetate to send to grandma or whatever. But here are some of the amateurs who Sam Phillips let record. B.B. King, Junior Parker. Howlin' Wolf, Elvis Presley. So these are guys who clearly were only amateurs when they met Sam Phillips and were definitely not amateurs by the time their relationship with him had moved on to greener pastures. The reason that I find your point about Rocket 88 to be particularly noteworthy here 
is that that is a song that is often considered to be the first real rock and roll song. With its unique combination of sound, feel, and subject matter, Rocket 88 is widely regarded as the first rock and roll record. Many more hits were to follow. This is a really important thing uh, because it's written by a 19-year-old Ike Turner, and it kind of led to Ike going out on his own. Uh, there was some disagreement between him and uh, Jackie Brinston over who should get credit for what, and ultimately that leads to the split that gives us Tina Turner. This is you know, a milestone for a number of reasons. And again, not a Sun recording, in fact, recorded before the existence of Sun as a label, but recorded at the studios on Union Avenue. Someone else who we've mentioned on the Hayride before, Cowboy Jack Clement, uh, actually was a producer for three years for Sun starting in 1956. So, you know, Cowboy Jack goes on to become one of the more important Nashville producers, but he gets a start here. Riley King was a singing disc jockey on Memphis's WDIA, the first all-black radio station in the country. Sam recorded him under his radio name, B.B. King, and licensed the tracks to the West Coast RPM label. Phillips is specifically looking for something that's going to cross over between white and black audiences. This is still back in the days of the, you know, colored radio station format where there was literally a black radio station that would play black music or what was called race records often at the time. And Phillips knew what was happening. Those kids might not have been doing it in front of their parents, but he knows these kids are listening to this music. He knows that white kids are listening to the, the, the black artists, and he wants to find something that's going to have an appeal. And that's where he finds Elvis. And so finally, Sam Phillips, on July 5th, 1954, discovers what he's looking for. However, it didn't begin there. In August of 1953, a young kid from Tupelo, Mississippi, Elvis Presley, showed up to cut a record for his mom. He paid the fee that Phillips was charging at the time. He goes into the studio. He cuts a record. That record is called My Happiness. Evening shadows make me blue. When each weary day is through, how I long to be with you, my happiness. It's a gift for his mom. Phillips's secretary actually makes a note, you know, we got to keep an eye on this kid. And flashing back forward to July 5th of 1954, Elvis is in the studio. He meets Scotty Moore for the first time. And while they're kind of messing around in the studio, Elvis suddenly starts singing. That's all right. Phillips hears him singing and asks him, why have you been holding out on me? Now, this isn't any record producer hearing this song and trying to figure out why this white kid is goofing around playing something from a race record. This is Sam Phillips, who is intimately familiar with the music. 
That day, he leads the band in recording not only That's All Right. That's all right, mama, just any way you do it. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right, mama, any way do. But the B-side of that record is Blue Moon of Kentucky, the Bill Monroe tune. this becomes Elvis's first single on Sun Records. And it lets Sam Phillips kind of reestablish himself in a way that he was looking to do. It also leads to a lot of success that's going to bring in future artists. Now, we could sit here all day and talk about some of the people who recorded for Sun Records. We could talk about Billy Lee Riley and Roy Orbison. Uh, We could talk about these guys until we're blue in the face. But today... We're going to focus on Elvis, Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash, and Jerry Lee Lewis, the Million Dollar Quartet. Well, I'm going to leave well, down. Well, 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 I'm going to leave down. Oh, what was yeah. you playing a while ago, Carl A? Did you play an A while ago? Yeah. Well, 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 I'm going to lay down my burden. Down by the riverside, down by the riverside, down by the riverside, I'm gonna lay down on my burden. Down by the riverside, study one more. I mean, it's really like watching anybody's band practice. There's a little bullshitting going on, there's some stupid jokes going on. You play half a song you remember, you play another half of a song you remember. It just so happens that the four people doing this are in the order that they arrived at Sun Records, Elvis Presley, Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash, and Jerry Lee Lewis. Our friend, uh, Barry Dredzi, a a great music lover, great guy overall, um, I have had the Million Dollar Quartet picture in wherever i've lived for oh about 30 years now i've actually bought the thing at the gift shop down there in memphis and whenever barry shows up at the house looks at the picture and it's just the four horsemen it's not of this or that it's just the four horsemen i pretty much of everything i think barry kind of defines that in the the proper way um the photograph really sums up an era and a movement and a a short few year period of some of the most extraordinary musical accomplishment ever. Uh, As Chris had mentioned, you have Elvis, you know, and Phillips wanted to record him. They were kind of trying a few things through the evening, some gospel songs, a few ballads. And Sam was pretty much close to calling it a night. And Elvis and Scotty Moore started messing around on guitar and just playing a really hyped up version 
of the uh, Arthur Crudup song, That's All Right, Mama. And Phillips came back in the room and he was like, uh, can you do that for about two minutes and 46 seconds? And they were like, uh, well, we'll try. And yeah, we know what happens after that. Uh, they go on to do Blue Moon of Kentucky as the B-side. But then you have that great Elvis you know, run of Sun Records. Uh, you have I Forgot to Remember to Forget. I forgot to remember to forget her. I can't seem to get her off my mind. You have the uh, Milk Cow Blues. Oh, well, I woke up this morning and I looked out the door. I can tell that old Milk Cow by the way she looks. Holy fellas, that don't move me. Let's get real, real gone for a change. Well, I woke up this morning and I looked out the door I can tell that old milk cow, I can tell the way she'll own her If you sold my milk cow You have Blue Moon, Harbor Lights I saw the Harbor Lights They only told me we were born Mystery train. Train, train. Coming around Well, it took my baby, but it never will again. No, not again. It's just fantastic stuff. And this is the Elvis period that when his musical children, so to speak, when the guys in the Beatles or Keith Richards or Bruce Springsteen talks about Elvis, they talk about that period between 1954 and 1956. And that's, you know, those first two years, it's just extraordinary. You know, folks, this black and white Elvis versus colored Elvis you know, the, the movie era and the Sun Records versus the, the movie era. Uh, we actually had a bit of a debate about that as an entire country back in the early 90s. Uh, the U.S. Postal Service wanted to issue an Elvis Presley stamp. And there was a vote amongst the American people. I kid you not. Uh, I don't know how many participated. I know I did. Uh, but you had to basically choose between younger Elvis and older Vegas Elvis. And classic Elvis prevailed. Uh, the stamp is still out there. You can still get it. But a, this was such a cultural kind of revolutionary thing that Elvis and these guys created that, you know, based on records he made in the mid-50s, People in the early 90s are having a discussion about which era of Elvis they want on their postage stamp. That's a pretty good definition for profound impact. 
Now music is traveling all over the world. Specifically, sailors are taking Sun Records to ports of call everywhere they go. One of those places is Liverpool in England, where the young future Beatles first become acquainted with the music of those like Elvis, Carl Perkins, etc. Now, the success of Elvis leads Sam to be able to sign Carl Perkins. And I know, Jim, you're probably the biggest Carl Perkins fan I know. You ask for it, I'll try it. I'll play it kind of simple, and then I'll try to put the echo to it like, like he oh, had I've it. All right. All right. <laughs> story takes place on December 4th, 1956 in Memphis at 706 Union Avenue. Uh, Carl Perkins is there working on his next single, Matchbox. This was one of the many Carl Perkins songs that the Beatles would wind up covering. And Jerry Lee Lewis is there because he's kind of the new kid on the block. He's only been at Sun for a few months, and he's initially hired on as a session piano player. So he's playing piano on Carl's record, Matchbox. Johnny Cash, who got signed to Thun just within a few months of when Carl Perkins did, they were good friends. Uh, Cash is there just to hang out and watch the session. You know, why not? And Elvis, who had already left for RCA Victor, he left Thun at the end of 1955. Um, but, you know, he lives in Memphis and his friends are still at the studio. The music scene is still centered around the studio. And he happens to wander in. Uh, Jack Clement, man on the scene in many cases, behind the recording booth and country music, uh, is aware of what's going on and hits the magic button because why the hell not? The four of them are hanging out. They're sitting at the piano playing mostly some gospel songs. Uh, they do a little bit of Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, a Chuck Berry song. Oh, I like that. I like, I like hearing him sing it. Yeah. Brown-Eyed Handsome Man. Yeah. Right across the desert. Right across the desert. Yeah. Right across the desert. 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 Right Something. Two, two men, three two, three to count, three men only hit a high fly in the stand. Around yeah, two thirty, was headed for home. It was a brown eye, handsome man. That was a game. Yeah. I just come off the fire. We turned. Yeah, Marlowe Venus was a beautiful lass. She had the world in the palm of her hand. Yeah. She lost both her arms in the wrestling match to get a brown-eyed handsome man. She fought and won herself a brown-eyed handsome man. <laughs> After 
Elvis, and again, he leaves at the end of 1955. He goes to RCA Victor. Um, the next guy to show up on the scene is Carl Perkins, who comes wandering in in the spring of 1955. And in March, he cuts an excellent debut single called Movie Mag. Now let me take you to the movies, Mag, so I can hold your hand. Oh, it ain't that I don't like your house, it's just that doggone man And I double barrel behind the door and wait for Carl, I know Oh, climb up on old Becky's back and let's ride to the picture show I only see her once a week and that's when And then he follows that up uh, at New Year's of 1956 with blue tweed shoes And then he goes on to do Matchbox I'm an old poor boy, long way from home. Guess I'll never be happy, everything I do is wrong. Yeah. Honey Doe, True Love. Pop in the blues, just it's an incredible run. He leaves on in 1958, goes to Columbia. He might be the biggest influence on the Beatles of these four million dollar quartet guys in, in terms of what the Beatles actually wound up going on to record. We know Elvis, he definitely lit the spark, but. The Beatles, in their early theater gig and BBC radio broadcast days, did an almost perfect note-for-note of Sure to Fall, the Carl Perkins song, and we've got a bit for you here. I'm sure to fall in their recording career they did matchbox and honey don't uh, which gave ringo a chance to sing on both of those and for george to really show off his love of carl perkins uh and then of course one we've talked about in our rockabilly episode that uh, george leads the beatles through an amazing cover of everybody's trying to be my baby and again just one of those signature George Harrison guitar solos is just a testament to Carl Perkins. I'm 
Jones, one time for me. Think of these four guys, Elvis and Jerry Lee, clearly the, the singers, the frontmen, the big personalities. Um, Elvis, probably the best pure voice. I would say Perkins, obviously the best guitar player, probably best overall musician of the bunch. Jerry Lee, a, an extraordinary piano player. Wrote some very good songs in the first few years of his career. And then I think you have Johnny Cash ultimately kind of emerge over the years as the overall best songwriter of the bunch. And if you start with Folsom Prison and Home of the Blues and Big River and things like that, and you're still writing really good material, you know, in the 90s when you're in your solo records with uh, the American Recording Series. Yeah, that's kind of how I would break up um, the guys in terms of those categories. And, of course, Phillips, you know, the amazing mad scientist uh, producer of the bunch. As much as I think it's a legitimate thing when people refer to the producer George Martin as a fifth Beatle, I, I think it's an absolutely legitimate thing to look at Sam Phillip and say, yeah, okay, million-dollar quintet. Without him, none of this happens. Carl's driving a truck. Elvis is driving a truck. Johnny Cash is selling vacuum cleaners door to door. Jerry Lee is probably chasing somebody's daughter somewhere. Uh, it's really best to get these guys inside and around some instruments. Keep them out of trouble. And give us an extraordinary soundtrack for our own lives as we get into trouble. So Jim, you mentioned the 1992 Which Elvis Are We Going to Vote For campaign, and I can recall vividly a little over 30 years later how big of a cultural impact that made. Uh, it turns out, you know, well, let me give a quick aside, though, right? These days when we think of, oh, you're going to vote for something, you think, oh, I'm just going to click this link and push a button from my phone. Oh, I can vote how many times a day? This wasn't that. This was ballots were sent, like pre pre addressed ballots were sent to post offices around the country. And then in the April 13th, 1992 edition of People magazine, you could get a ballot there as well. Nearly 1.2 million ballots were returned to the Postal Service. So then I dropped it in the mailbox as in a special deed. Bright and early next morning, it came right back to me. She rode upon it, returned to send it. Address unknown. And more than 75% of those were for the younger Elvis. So skinny Elvis definitely took the day uh, by a wide margin. But you know, again, these days it's so easy to think, oh, just a million, you know, one million votes. Who cares about that? But think about what it actually took to vote at that time. This was a cultural phenomenon. Absolutely, because you had to do the postcard and then actually go to the mailbox. 
you're right. It wasn't a open a tab, click a thing, and off you go. You actually had to put some effort into this, and you had to make sure you had the postcard stamp because that was a different rate than the regular letters. So, yeah, you had to jump through a few hoops here to promote the king. I saw Carl Perkins the first time when he was at his first session at Sun Records. And uh, I felt a kindred, kindred spirit from day one, you know. I mean, he's like uh, somebody you meet and you feel like you've known him all your life. Carl Perkins could still be one of the biggest artists in the world. And he deserves it. Some things that you've talked about on past episodes of The Hayride include Perkins learning to play guitar on that Gene Autry model where he couldn't even afford new strings. So he had to tie broken ones together and therefore learned his own unique style to keep him from cutting himself to ribbons. Uh, you've also talked about Perkins, the songwriter and the incredible chutzpah that it takes to write a sequel song to will the circle be unbroken and play that live on stage with Maybell Carter night after night. And I think that idolizing Perkins in the way that you do, in the way that I do, you know, I think the man is worthy and deserving of that adulation, but it's really too bad because barring a few unfortunate incidents in his life, the man would have been a massive rock star. I wouldn't have traded places with Elvis. I wouldn't have traded places with Johnny Cash, who started there, Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy. None of these guys. Stumbling blocks are always there. But it's it's what you do with them. It's 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 using them. It's turning them babies around and and, and getting up and walking again, you know. By playing my music, by having as many friends as I can have, by having the same woman forty four years. Some five hundred songs after he began writing. 40 years, nine grandchildren and two great-grandchildren later, Carl Perkins was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, you know, I really want listeners of the Hayride, if you take nothing else from this episode, go find some of these Carl Perkins tunes that we're talking about and that you've heard the clips of. Go listen to the songs. Go buy the music. Go enjoy it. I know this is a thing I speak about constantly where I say, go back and listen to what got you here. But this is really an instance in which it should happen. You know, when I was young, I would have told you that everybody's trying to be my baby was a Beatles song. It just is, but it's not. I would have told you, honey, don't. That's that's clearly a Beatles song, but it's not. So, you know, unfortunately for Carl, his biggest hits came through covers of his own tunes by other artists. And yet the man was such a just preeminent songwriter that there's there's no love lost between the artists and the music you know you can hear the reverence in the way that these guys play and sing his music so unfortunately the carl perkins that we all think of is is kind of a lesser character but that certainly doesn't match reality and it's definitely not the opinion that his label mates or bandmates would have ever given you of him but if you just walk up to somebody, they've never even heard the name Carl Perkins or, or Sun Records, and you say, 
one for the money, two for the show, that person's going to know the rest of it. They're going to know exactly what the hell you're talking about. Um, the man created a, a part of the shared universal language. And again, you got Mabel Carter on one end and George Harrison on the other. Thing in your praises. Uh, good on you, Carl Perkins. In June of 1955, you have this sort of oddball, quiet type guy with an extraordinary baritone voice walk in. Uh, a kid from Arkansas named Johnny Cash, born in February of 1932. And he wants to record gospel music because that's what his mama taught him. It is something that over his long career, Cash kind of establishes as a big part of his musical identity. And I'm sure it's not the accurate version, but the fun version of the story goes is that Sam Phillips turned Johnny down and said, you have an amazing singing voice. I'm not really recording gospel now. Go out and do some sinning, write about it. Come back, let me know what you got. Well, it does kind of play out that way. Uh, in June of 1955, Johnny Cash, with uh, the bass player Marshall Grant and guitar player Luther Perkins, they put out their debut single, Hey Porter. This really sets the template for all the great Johnny Cash railroad songs to come. You have a southern boy on the way home, and it's basically the train version of the kid sitting in the back of the car. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? In this case, it's Johnny on a train bugging the porter and the conductor. And as the sun's coming up and they're getting into Tennessee and he sees the sun and he can smell the, the southern air and all that, he paints a fantastic picture. And right out of the gate with their first single, Johnny and, and Luther and Marshall have that chugga-chugga, that railroad vibe going. And yeah, this is the first of many fantastic train songs by Johnny Cash. At daylight, would you tell that engineer to slow it down? Or better still, just stop the train, cause I want to look around. Hey, Porter, hey, Porter, what time did you say? How much longer will it be till I can see the light of day? When we hit Dixie, will you tell that engineer to ring his bell? The flip side also kind of sets the format for another type of Johnny Cash song, the kind of spurned, little bit angry, little bit melancholy, uh, deserted lover type character with Cry, Cry, Cry. Everybody knows where you go when the sun goes down. I think you only live to see the lights uptown. I wasted my time when I would try, try, try. Cause when the lights have lost their glow, you cry, cry, cry. He gets a little more into the melancholy side of that with some of the other great Sun records, like I Still Miss Someone. At my door, the leaves are falling. The cold, wild wind will come. Sweethearts walk by together. And Home of the Blues. Of course, the classics from this early Sun era are Folsom Prison and I Walk the Line. 
um, big river, which is a great way to remember the key cities as you go down the Mississippi River, uh, much in the same way you can remember the route out to the southwest when you listen to Nat King Cole sing Route 66. Donnie's got you right down the Mississippi all the way through Baton Rouge and all the way to the Gulf. And you took me to St. Louis later on down the river. A freighter said she's been here, but she's gone, boy, she's gone. I found her trail in Memphis, but she just walked up the bluff. She raised a few eyebrows and then she went on down alone. Now won't you bat it down by Baton Rouge, River Queen, roll it on. The output of all four of these guys, uh, extraordinary. And the last man on the scene, and oddly enough, the last man not only to leave Sun Records in the early 60s, but the last, literally the last man standing is what the nickname wound up being. We can only be talking about the killer, Jerry Lee Lewis, God's favorite piano player, um, born in September of 1935 in Louisiana. He comes into Sun around November of 1956, which is almost a year after Elvis is gone. And he's, uh, as we mentioned, he's a session piano player. He plays piano on a lot of the Carl Perkins records. on other records is needed he does wind up leaving son in 1963 for mercury records but jerry lee lewis the accomplishments in music and out um seven wives six kids uh he's in the rock hall of fame he's in the country music hall of fame the rockabilly hall of fame he has a lifetime grammy he probably fooled around with your grandma at some point uh, and later in his career, he hits number ones in the country charts with the cover of Me and Bobby McGee, and then um, with a song called Another Time, Another Place. They're turning out the lights I've been feeding that old jukebox Just to hold you tight Yes, it's for the best. I just put in my last dime. Way to get yourself to lovely, beautiful Memphis, Tennessee. It, it, it is a pretty little city right on the Mississippi River. If you like traditional Southern American food, if you like seafood, if you like sweet tea, so sweet, it comes with a big bucket of insulin. Um go to memphis and and seriously go to the sun records building you literally have the chance to walk through the building to look at the old recording equipment to look at the the tape players and the mixing boards and the microphones of the late 40s and early 50s um, rca and western electric were kind of kings at that point but at the end of the tour um, and, and please, we're 
thrown a lot of stuff up on YouTube, so please go have a look. But at the end of the tour, you yourself are standing in the room where Elvis recorded That's All Right Mama and Mystery Train and Blue Moon of Kentucky. You're standing in the room where Carl Perkins recorded Blue Suede Shoes. You can do anything but lay off of my blue suede shoes. You're standing in the room where Johnny Cash records I Walk the Line and Folsom Prison and Big River. have the old piano in there that jerry lee recorded on and there's still a cigarette hole in one of the keys in the piano I know I've told this story before. Um, if you can, go on the tour with your kids. They have to be seven to get in, but I can tell you, because I was there with my daughter, if you have a cute kid with you, when they get to the who wants to sit at the Jerry Lee Lewis piano thing, your kid will win that part of the tour every time, especially if they've got the Sun Records t-shirt on. Um I have been on this tour, I think, four or five times over the years, and I know it's coming every time. And you get into that room and you're standing there. It's a real powerful, emotional, indescribable kind of thing. But your head, your heart, and your hips are all keenly aware of where you are and what kind of sound has come out of that space, and you will be one happy person. I like the fact that you mentioned how Sam Phillips had told Johnny Cash to go home, sin, and write about it. You know, it's interesting because Johnny Cash walks into the studio. He wants to be a gospel singer. You know, his mother has always wanted him to sing gospel tunes. He comes from a deeply religious family. He himself is a deeply religious man. But Sam Phillips realizes that gospel singers are a dime a dozen, but this voice is definitely not. And he gets cash to essentially go back to secular roots of the stuff that he loves 
And we get this amazing career that spans the next several decades. And it's all a result of Sam Phillips not only hearing what he was hearing, but hearing what he wasn't hearing and knowing that if he could hear that, he would have something. It makes sense. Trust me. With Jerry Lee, you know, you're right. He's one of the all-time great piano players. He's just amazing. And the greatest thing is when you watch clips of this man playing piano, you realize this is something you could never do. But he makes it look so easy that you think, but maybe I could. You know, it's incredible to watch the man work. Find any clip you can find of him on any of those old shows. Hell, just go on the Hayride Facebook page and look at any of the clips that we're going to post. You're going to see a man who attacks his instrument in the most fascinating way and gets these incredible sounds to come out of it. And it's just brilliant. He also, along with, I guess, everybody in the quartet, really, but certainly with Johnny and Elvis, he's conflicted in a lot of ways. There's a part of him that is deeply religious. He loves his gospel music. He finds that to be an important part of his life. And yet, as Jim mentioned, he's probably nailing your grandma at some point. The man is just a walking contradiction, but what he gives us is pure brilliance. Uh, Jim mentioned that Jerry Lee is often referred to as the last man standing. That is because he was one of the, well, he was the last of the quartet to pass away. Uh, as a matter of fact, in 2006, he releases an album of duets called Last Man Standing. I highly recommend that album. It's really entertaining. Tragically, on October 28th, 2022, Jerry Lee becomes the last man on the quartet to leave us. And for those keeping score at home, the first episode of The Hayride was released one day prior on October 27th. 2022. I also find it really interesting that Sam Phillips, who's clearly a pioneer of numerous genres of music, uh, as a matter of fact, we should point out that he's actually in just about any Hall of Fame that you can be in. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's in the Rockabilly Hall of Fame. He is in the Alabama Music Hall of Fame, where he's from. Uh, he received a lifetime Grammy. He is in the Blues Hall of Fame. He's in the Country Hall of Fame. He's in the Memphis Hall of Fame. If there's a Hall of Fame that you're ever walking by, stop in. Odds are pretty good that Sam Phillips will be in that Hall of Fame. Not personally, but inducted. Him and Dolly Parton. Him and Dolly. Together, again. I really think that... The place to close the chapter on Sam Phillips and Sun Records and the studio on Union Avenue is with some words from the man himself. In that American Masters documentary that I uh, mentioned earlier, Sam says this. That's why I'm so proud of the influence it's had over the years. Hell, I mean, you talk about that little studio. It's like it was for me. That's the biggest cathedral in the world, you know? Have some fried catfish. Have a few pints. Uh, go across town and go do the Stacks tour just to get the soul music in you. And then go to the Lorraine Motel where the Civil Rights Museum is. 
and pay respects to Dr. King and everything that he represented in his work. Um, but yeah, go to Memphis. And uh, Chris, why are you going to Memphis? Well, I'm going to go to B.B. King's on Beale Street because not only will you hear some amazing blues music, but the catfish bites are one of the best appetizers I have ever had. And because it's Memphis, you can get a baked potato that is still stuffed with pulled pork. These are things that happen at B.B. King's. You know, you see these videos of B.B. and the man was not a small man. You go to B.B. King's restaurant and it becomes very obvious. Why? Man, is that food good. It's not just Sam Phillip and the combination of musicians that he brought together. You know, again, folks from Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King, Roy Orbison, Elvis, Carl Perkins. It's something that could have only happened in Memphis of the mid-50s through the mid-60s. It's right on the Mississippi River, so you have a lot of influence coming and going because you're on a major body of water. You're also kind of halfway between Chicago and New Orleans. So in terms of music traveling back and forth, you are right in the middle of all that. In Memphis of this era is very racially divided, but the musical community in the city insist on racial togetherness, racial collaboration. Uh, we've pointed out a few examples of that, you know, with Sam Phillips at Sun, and he really felt that it was his mission to bring black music to white people and white music to black people and just have it all blend in and not have the labels on the other side of the city you have jim stewart and estelle axton forming the Stax records label and their house band and their two main producers booker t jones and steve cropper they form the mixed race group booker t and the mgs You have Al Jackson, the drummer, and Booker T, the keyboard player. And then you have Donald Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper, bass and guitar. But it's really Booker T and, and Cropper as a black man and a white man working as partners that fulfill that part of the cultural mission at Stax Records. And um, with the founders, with Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton, you have a male-female team that's starting the label so the variety uh, and breaking down the barriers between the genders and black and white is very important and of course this is the environment that gives rise as kind of a focal point for what martin luther king does during this period memphis is very key to his work and memphis is now the american city where our national civil rights museum is um, it's a unique time in a city with a perfect location and just a perfect mix of ingredients 
and you get some of the most incredible music ever and you get it done despite the rest of the entertainment world being heavily segregated and uh, that all these guys just instinctively join together and produce this music I think it's nice to know what we're ultimately capable of as humans, even if we don't quite nail it day to day. Well, folks, as usual, we do have a recipe from the world of classic country music coming up for you. But do keep in mind that when you are in Memphis, and I I cannot eat at this place enough, Go to Corky's Barbecue at 5259 Poplar Avenue in Memphis. The food is fantastic. The pecan pie, you're going to want to stay there all day and eat pie, basically. But the nice part about the restaurant is they bottle their barbecue sauce, and you can buy it and bring it home with you. So um, any part, any good barbecue recipe that we recommend to you, if you can't get some sweet baby rays, then hit the Quirky's website and order some barbecue sauce from those fine folks. In addition to the fantastic restaurant recommendation, we do have our traditional recipe segment. And because we're talking Memphis and we're talking the million dollar quartet, we're going back to that Johnny Cash, June Carter family cookbook. And Chris is going to enlighten us with some yummy sounding hash brown casserole. For this episode's recipe, we're going with the Cash Family Easy Hash Brown Casserole. For this one, you're going to need cooking spray, three large baking potatoes, unpeeled, shredded, and moisture squeezed out to equal 20 ounces or two and a half cups, one and a half cups of shredded cheddar cheese. Uh, Here it says mom and dad both preferred extra sharp, but use medium if you prefer. A quarter cup of diced onions, one garlic clove. One garlic clove crushed, one 10 and a half ounce can of cream of chicken soup, a quarter teaspoon of cayenne pepper is optional, salt and black pepper, and a quarter cup, which is a half a stick of unsalted butter. To make this tasty treat, you're going to preheat the oven to 375 degrees. You'll coat a two quart casserole dish with cooking spray. In a large bowl, Combine the shredded potatoes, cheese, onions, garlic, soup, and cayenne pepper if using. Add the salt and black pepper. Most canned soups already have loads of salt in them, so keep that in mind when you add more salt. Cut the butter into four even tablespoons. Press each pat of butter into the bottom of the casserole dish at even intervals. Cover the butter pats with the potato mixture. Cover the dish with foil and bake for 30 to 40 minutes. Remove the foil, increase the oven temperature to 400 degrees, cook an additional 5 to 10 minutes until the top is golden brown. Remove from the oven and let sit for at least 10 minutes before serving. This will net you 4 to 6 servings. Or 1 if you're Elvis. All right, thank you for listening to this episode of Six String Hayride. Again, this is the first episode of the second season. You can expect to hear a lot more from us this season. I don't think we're ever going to run out of things to say. However, we'd like for you to also not run out of things to say, and you can say them by emailing us at sixstringhayride at yahoo.com. The word six is spelled out, so that's sixstringhayride at yahoo.com. You can also find us by searching for Six String Hayride on Facebook, 
Or if you'd like to support us in our efforts, go to patreon.com slash six string hayride. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash six string hayride. Well, folks, thanks again for joining your hosts, Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley on the Six String Hayride Classic Country Podcast. We are here for all of your classic country, rockabilly, early rock and roll, little gospel, little blues, a lot of excellent country music-themed recipes. And basically, we are here to keep your musical circle rocking bopping and very much unbroken so thank you for sticking with us we will see you down the road real soon and again whether it's in your home in your community wherever it is you do your thing keep your circle unbroken stay well stay safe and we'll see you real soon can the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by. There's a bitter home awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the sky. One of these days, and it won't be long, I'll rejoin them in a song. I'm going to join the family circle at the throne. No, the circle won't be broken by and by lord by and by remember the force will be with you always